Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Carson Lay, and today I'm joined by Lori Hatton Boyd and Danielle Nishida for a discussion of information reporting requirements after a merger or acquisition, and specifically the elective reporting procedures under RevProc 9950 and the unique documentation rules for accounts obtained in a merger or bulk acquisition. But before we dive into these special rules, I want to briefly describe the rules for a standard year. In the payment context, the general rule is that any person that makes a payment subject to reporting is the one responsible for fulfilling the associated reporting obligations for that payment. These obligations typically apply on a calendar year basis, regardless of the filer's fiscal year. So any payments a filer makes at any point in 2022, for example, are generally required to be reported on 2022 filings due in 2023. This includes information returns such as Forms 1099 or 1042S, as well as the corresponding tax returns, Forms 945 and 1042. Now, when a merger or acquisition occurs, the year is split between two distinct periods. You have the pre-acquisition period, where each party to the transaction is a distinct entity that makes its own payments, and the post-acquisition period, where one of the parties, the predecessor, has been merged into or acquired by the other, leaving only the remaining entity or the successor entity to make new payments going forward. Under the general rule, the predecessor and successor entities each file information returns and the associated tax returns for the payments they made during the year. So for the predecessor, this is going to be returns covering payments made up until the acquisition. And for the successor, it's going to be payments made over the entire year. While this rule is easy enough to understand, implementing it in practice can be a little more difficult given that the predecessor no longer exists at the time the returns are due. And this is where RevProc 9950 comes in. So, Lori, can you explain how RevProc 9950 works and when it potentially applies? Sure, Carson. So this revenue procedure provides an alternative procedure to what you were just describing, where both entities would be responsible for their own separate reporting. And it would allow the successor entity to assume all or a portion of the predecessor's information reporting requirements for that pre-acquisition period. The RevProc provides the specific forms that it covers, and and that includes the Form 1042S, 1098, the entire series of Form 1099, 5498, and a W-2G. Now, the 8966 that U.S. withholding agents sometimes have to file to report payments to passive NFFEs with substantial U.S. owners is not included. The reason for that is, of course, this revenue procedure was released in 1999 and those rules didn't exist then. The IRS has informally stated that it would apply to that form as well. So the way the the alternative procedure works, the two entities would agree that the successor entity would assume either all of the forms, and so it would be doing all of the reporting for the pre-acquisition period, or certain types of forms. They can pick and choose, and as long as it's clearly stated in in that agreement, then that's fine. Or it could also be for a particular line of business or a branch where the predecessor may not have that information anymore to be able to do the reporting itself. And can you explain a little bit more about the types of transaction these procedures apply to? Yeah, so usually we see this when it's a complete merger where where all of the assets and liabilities of the predecessor have been assumed by the acquirer. But it can also be just a separate purchase of a particular line of business within the predecessor's trader business. So let's dig into the details of how the reporting works. 
The standard reporting rules typically require filers to aggregate the payments they make with the same characteristics to the same payee over the course of the year. Do those rules apply here, or does a successor entity need to somehow distinguish the payments it's reporting on behalf of the predecessor? So basically, whatever the two parties agreed to, so let's just say, for example, they agreed that the successor is going to do all of the information reporting for the entity that it acquired. So it would essentially act as if it made all of the payments throughout the entire year, and it's going to be doing the information reporting for the entire amount of the payment, including the tax. It's important to note, though, that for those returns that are transactional, so for example, the 1099B, the successor would have to be filing separate transactional forms 1099B for the entire year, so even those sales proceeds that were paid by the predecessor. And what about the associated tax returns? Is the successor aggregating that reporting as well? Yeah, no, that's a very important point. So the the revenue procedure only covers information returns. So each separate entity has its own filing requirements for the actual tax return. So the 945, of course, that's only filed if backup withholding was actually imposed. So if the predecessor had imposed backup withholding for the time that it was making the payments, it would file its own separate 945. And then both entities would be filing 1042s, regardless of the situation, to cover the payments that each of them made during the, the time period that they were making the payments. So the successor is going to include the predecessor's payments and withholding on the information returns it files, but it's not going to include those amounts on its tax returns. So that means there's going to be a discrepancy between the successor's information returns and its tax returns, which typically shouldn't be the case. No, that's exactly right. So the successor, again, going back to my example, if it took on all of the information reporting for the predecessor, it's going to be reporting all of the withheld tax by that predecessor on the Forms 1042S that it issues. So then, of course, the information on its Forms 1042-S are not going to reconcile to the tax amounts that it's reporting on its Form 1042. And that's where the revenue procedure provides very prescriptive guidance as to what the successor is supposed to do. And it's supposed to attach this alternative reporting statement to its Form 1042. And among other things, it's going to have a reconciliation of the amounts that were withheld by the predecessors so that the IRS is able to match up the two Forms 1042 to then reconcile that with the Forms 1042-S that the successor had filed. And there have been several proposals that require the Form 1042 to be filed electronically. So presumably the IRS is going to need to update these notice procedures if those electronic filing requirements ever go into effect. Yeah, I think that is exactly right, um, because it's anticipating a a paper notification of this alternative procedure. I think it's going to be the same thing with the the Forms 1042-S that have to be attached to the 1042 to claim credits for amount withheld upstream. It's going to have to be that same process. They're going to have to have some separate mechanism for withholding agents to file these types of things that need to be associated with the 1042 once the filing requirements are electronic. Thanks, Lori. Those explanations were really helpful. Uh, Let's move on to the account documentation rules. Danielle, can you briefly explain the special documentation rules that apply to accounts acquired in a merger or acquisition? Sure, Carson. So for both Chapter 3 and FACA purposes, if a U.S. withholding agent or financial institution acquires an account in a merger or a bulk acquisition for value, then the financial institution is permitted to rely on the predecessor's valid documentation or copies of the predecessor's documentation. So the acquirer can get the documentation in any form, originals or copies, but the key here is that the documentation must be valid, which means that the acquirer would need to conduct a validation exercise for all of the documentation collected from the predecessor. 
even if the predecessor has already done this, because otherwise the acquirer is not going to know whether the documentation is valid or not. And the acquirer will be liable if it relies on documentation and it turns out that that documentation is invalid. Obviously, it's very difficult for an acquirer who's obtaining potentially millions of accounts to instantly validate all of the documentation. So the regulations do provide limited transitional relief. Under the transitional relief, it provides the acquirer up to six months to rely on the status assigned by the predecessor. That transitional period will last really the lesser of six months or an earlier period if the acquirer knows that the claim of the entity classification and status is inaccurate or a change in circumstance occurs. And so what's usually going to happen is the acquirer obtains the statuses and the documentation. It should begin its process to start validating that documentation. If the acquirer on month three looks at a particular account and determines that the status isn't supported by the documentation, the acquirer now has the knowledge that it can't rely on that status and has to immediately start withholding. It doesn't get to last out the remaining six months. On the other hand, if it takes the acquirer six months to get to a particular account to obtain that knowledge, then it gets to use the full six-month period. But basically, it's a six-month period unless you know or something changes with respect to the account. Now, this transitional relief is only permitted in certain circumstances. Number one, the acquirer cannot obtain the account from a related party for the obvious reason that if you're part of a expanded affiliated group, the government's going to hold you liable because you're getting this account information from a related entity. So they're not providing you the limits on liability in that case. Additionally, for Chapter 3 purposes, this transitional relief is only permitted if the predecessor is either a U.S. withholding agent or if the acquirer is a QI, the acquirer can also obtain the documentation from another QI and can use that transitional relief. For FACA purposes, they have a similar requirement. That transitional period reliance is only permitted if the predecessor was either a U.S. withholding agent a participating FFI that's completed all of its due diligence requirements, or a Model 1 FFI that has also completed all of its due diligence required under the IGAs. And that statement about all the due diligence requirements being completed was more relevant when we were at the start of FATCO, where all the financial institutions had their two-year period to remediate existing accounts. Basically, if the financial institution hadn't remediated all of its accounts yet, then obviously the acquirer can't rely on that because they weren't done with the due diligence. Now that we've moved past this period, we're going to generally expect all of the PFFIs and all of the Model 1s to have completed their due diligence. And so the rule really amounts to you can rely on the documentation from a U.S. withholding agent, a participating FFI, or a Model 1 FFI. Now, for both FACA and Chapter 3, if at the end of that transitional period, the acquirer discovers that the status relied upon was inaccurate, and that a higher withholding amount should have been applied, the acquirer is now required to withhold from any future payments the amount of that underwithheld tax. So the way the rule works is, if you have access to future payments, you've got to make up that underwithholding that occurred during that transitional period. If there are no future payments, then there's no requirement to withhold. So the acquirer is not going to be put in a worse position where they have to actually pay out of pocket because they relied on the documentation during that transitional period. Now, I should note that there is one other method of transitional relief that's only applicable to participating financial institutions and only with respect to FATCA, and it's written in the 1471-4 regulations. 
It's generally not relied upon, but I do want to point out that it's there. And this method allows a acquiring entity to rely on the predecessor statuses if it gets certain certifications from the predecessor and if it does a certain amount of testing from the accounts. I'm not going to go into it in detail because we don't see it relied upon very often and it's only applicable for FATCA from participating FFI. So it's got a limited application. Usually you're going to see some chapter three impact, which means you're going to want to rely on the rules we just talked about. But I just want to point out that it's there in case anyone's interested in looking to that. So we've talked about the chapter three rules and we've talked about the FACA rules and the regulations, but it raises the question, what happens if you're a model one IGA FFI and you're not following those regulations? The IGAs don't provide specific guidance on relying on documentation in a merger or acquisition. So what you would have to do is look to the local guidance and we don't see a lot of local guidance that addresses these rules. That means that more often than not, that transitional period of reliance isn't going to be available to you. But what I will say is the rules about relying on copies or predecessor documentation, it may not be specifically addressed in the local guidance, but that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to do it. For example, it is possible to structure arrangements to have the documents transferred to you. The local guidance may have lesser rules about relying on copies versus originals, so that may not be an issue at all. So that doesn't mean that even if the rules aren't specifically addressed in the local guidance, it doesn't mean there's no relief available. It just means that specific relief addressed in the regulations may not be available. And so again, this is going to vary based on the local guidance. Some local guidance may have referred to the rules in the Treasury regulations, others won't. And what about the CRS? Uh, Does it provide the same leeway as the Chapter 3 and 4 rules you were discussing? The OECD CRS guidance does contain a similar rule to the Treasury regulations when it comes to relying on the predecessor's documentation. So specifically, if a financial institution acquires an account in a merger or bulk acquisition for value, that financial institution may rely upon the predecessor's documentation or copies of the predecessor's documentation as long as that documentation is valid. So that rule is the same as Chapter 3 and Chapter 4. Additionally, if the accounts are acquired in a merger or bulk acquisition for value from a reporting financial institution that has completed all of its due diligence for the transferred accounts, the acquirer is also permitted to rely on the predecessor or transferor's determination as to the account holder's status until that acquirer knows or has reasons to know that the status is inaccurate or a change in circumstance has occurred. That would mean that if the financial institution acquired any additional information relevant to the person's status, then the financial institution would then need to evaluate all of the information on file for the person to determine whether the existing status can be relied on. Now, this is different from the Chapter 3 or Chapter 4 rules in the sense that there is no six-month time limit. So this rule allows you to take the status assigned by the predecessor, and until you have reason to know, you're permitted to rely upon it. And obviously, there's no withholding for CRS, so there's no withholding consequence if it turns out that that status was unreliable. So in that sense, the CRS rules provide a little bit more flexibility and a little more ability to rely on your predecessor's previously assigned status. Thanks, Danielle. That's going to wrap up our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening in. We'd love to hear any feedback you have for us, which you can provide using the feedback button on the Coffee Break homepage. We hope you can join us again soon.